This is the Humerian Health Podcast. Spilling our guts for the well-being of yours. Hi, this is Dr. Sean Benzinger and Amy Baker joining you from the Humerian Health Podcast. And today we are blessed to be able to have Dr. Pilar Jennings, who is a Ph.D., um, she authored a book, To Heal, A Wounded Heart, A Transformative Power of Buddhism and Psychotherapy in Action. So I take it that you're, you're teaching them Buddhism and psychotherapy while they're running in action. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Dr. Jennings, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Sean. Well, let's talk about some of the background, which led you to all of this. You're a, a psychotherapist, a Ph.D., uh, so what got you to this point to integrate um, this type of meditation and therapy? Yeah. Well, I, I had been exposed to meditation as a child. So before I, I knew I was going to become a therapist, I was practicing Buddhism and uh, very interested in the, the psychological impact of meditation, just having spent many years developing as a, as a young person and noticing how helpful it was to have a way to still the mind, notice what I was feeling, and, and stay curious about those feelings non-reactively. So as I ultimately decided to become a therapist, uh, to me it seemed like these two traditions, as different as they are, had had real common ground that I wanted to find some way to bring together. That's great. You, and you talk about, I mean, it's even on the cover of the book, about a six-year-old girl who you had as a patient and that she stopped talking and that you kind of were able to use this more unconventional pathway to therapy um, to help her. And so I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the story of that girl and kind of what led you to to being able to help her in that way. Sure, sure. I, at the time, I, I was training to become a psychoanalyst, and I, I was working with several children and their families. And I, I noticed that I, I was bringing my experience with Buddhist meditation into the treatment in different ways. Hmm. Uh, with this particular child, uh, she, she tended not to speak. And I felt some identification with her because I was a very introverted child myself. Uh, I had also had difficulties and losses in childhood that uh, felt like too much to try to talk about. Um, and so with her and with, with the other children that I was working with, I, I tried to find a way to just be with the silence, enter into the silence. Hmm. which therapists who are not Buddhists also try to do because we all have patients who will at times find it very hard to talk about what they've lived through. Uh, but I found that the training in Buddhism helped me to, to just stay the course, not, not get too intimidated uh, or lose hope that there, there was potential to work through difficulties even before they were directly discussed. Hmm. Okay. And so you talked a little bit about, um, in that story in particular, um, just about sometimes that people go through trauma that's yeah. so significant, there, there's just not words for it right at the time, possibly, as they're processing through it. And, I mean, trauma is a very 
broad and large topic. And so I'm wondering if you can share with us kind of your perspective or just an overview on, you know, how would you define what trauma is maybe? Um, and is, is all different kinds of trauma this, the same? Are they different? Um, just a little bit more. So we're kind of all grounded and, and coming kind of from the same perspective on that. Sure. It's, it's such a good question because everyone has an intuitive sense of, of what trauma is and what it feels like, but I think it's helpful to clarify, at least from a clinical perspective, mm-hmm. um, how it, what it's understood to be. And broadly speaking, trauma is, is any situation in which a person feels um, excessively stressed to the point that they, they don't have any consolidated coping mechanisms. And often that excessive stress involves a feeling of, of being disempowered, really not having ready defenses hmm. uh, in order to protect against whatever's happening. And okay. It could be something acute like an accident uh, or war. And it could also be something subtle like the experience a child might have with a caretaker who... Um, is just not emotionally attuned to who the child is. Mm, okay. And in each moment, the child has that feeling of disconnection, of rupture, of not quite being able to find who they are experiencing themselves to be and how the parent or the caretaker is, is seeing the child. Okay. And sometimes that's referred to as a microtrauma. Okay. But it also it also just involves that same feeling of helplessness and and excessive stress. Uh, I tell you what pops in my mind when you say that is bullying. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just I've heard, certainly heard stories after stories of men and women or girls and boys that have bullied, been bullied for years in in, in mm. tormented in terrible ways not just not necessarily sexual assault or anything but literally the emotional abuse that they'd go through at the hands of other children yeah, do you mm-hmm. see those type children also or I should say adults in these cases yeah I mean I've, I've certainly worked with adults uh, and with children who've been bullied um, either within the family or outside the family mm. Mm. Um, Good point. and it's it is it's a trauma, right, to, to have that feeling of helplessness mm-hmm. and also the, the radical isolation. That's, that's a real marker of trauma. Yeah. Makes sense. So, I mean, also in your book, um, it's sort of interesting you talk about your upbringing, and it sounds like it was maybe a little wild, um, and that uh, as, as different as you are— I can't wait for this I know, one. right? As different as you are <laughs> from, your, from your mother, it seems as though she has had uh, some impact on sort of your out-of-the-box approach to therapy. And so I'm just wondering if you could— share us uh, with us a little bit more about her and also maybe even your dad's influence on your professional path. Yeah, so my, my parents were interesting people, <laughs> <laughs> very different from each other. And so I, I think from an early age, I felt extremely aware of, of how different people can be. Hmm. Um, my, my mother is Peruvian, my father's Scottish-American, they had extremely different upbringings, a very, very different temperament and personality and parenting style. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I was seeing in them these radical differences. 
and and because they had such a different way of being in the world, um, my experience with them in the world was also extremely different. Mm-hmm. And so it just, it, I think it was waking me up to um, our incredible diversity of experience in this life. Well, I sure hear a child that looked at it completely different than probably most people would, mm-hmm. mostly if they came from uh-huh. such backgrounds, which could have been a, a friction-based. It could have been the calm parent, the yelling parent comparison. But to listen to you, it's kind of like you just were the were the child that just observed these mm-hmm. dynamic changes in between your parents. I think that is... Now, was it really that way, or you figured that out over time? Well, probably more the latter. Okay. <laughs> I, I was definitely an observant kid. Uh, I, I was introverted. I was shy. And so um, I would think I was noticing a lot like most kids. I think children, they want to be able to see. Right? They, they tend to have open minds and open hearts. The question is whether or not there are people available to help them understand what they're seeing, mm-hmm. whether or not it's it's tolerable, right, to to hold what they're seeing. Yeah, gotcha. that sure makes but sense. I, yeah, I think it took me a while, and I'm still, <laughs> right, like us all, still figuring out what I was observing. Yep, mm-hmm. absolutely. Makes sense. Um, <clears throat> well, you talked about coping mechanisms, the lack thereof, those that have to be developed, understood, et cetera, et cetera. And then you talk about the common ground between psycho, uh, uh, psychoanalyzation and, and Buddhism. Easy for you to say. I couldn't Psycho- even get it psychoanalysis. out. I'm going to practice that. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> um, but th- that common ground, when did you start matching up the common ground and then how it was utilized together for the benefit of your clients and patients? The common ground for me it shifts, um, but it had a lot to do with with listening and the quality of listening. And in Buddhism, we're we're encouraged really just to take a lot of time to be with ourselves, to notice what's arising in the mind and the heart, and to do that in the spirit of being able to do it for others. Mm-hmm. Right? Because we all we all need to feel understood. We all need to feel heard. Um, this is obviously a, a central part of the psychoanalytic tradition. Mm-hmm. Freud described it as evenly hovering attention, hmm. or that ability simply to listen without without moralization, without judgment. The historical Buddha called it bare attention. And so in both traditions, there's this deep respect for the importance of trying to listen with with real openness of spirit and to try to table judgments, right, to, to table an agenda and mm-hmm. and really lead with curiosity. What a beautiful perspective that this whole world could use right I know. Now. I was just saying, that, boy, that would be nice if we could have <laughs> half of that. I yeah. mean, that's fabulous. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I... I it sounds like I, I, I've heard of guided listening. I've heard of terms along that line. So, of course, they don't come to you, sit down, start talking, and you just listen for an hour and dismiss them and start over. Right. What are you trying to do at that point? Which, first of all, setting the tone for every therapist that you've just set, that that's exactly what should be happening. It makes all the sense in the world not to have predisposing ideas and factors and goals before you even listen to what somebody has to say. That's that's brilliant. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think it 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 manifests differently in each treatment, right? It depends on what's happening between two people. Um, with some patients, I'm very interactive, right? I'm I'm still listening, but in a way that looks a little different than how I might listen to someone else, right? Again, depending on how our, our personalities are mixing, but also mm-hmm. just depending on what each person is needing. So... I, and I would say again, this is true. This is true for for therapists who are not necessarily Buddhist. I think the the good clinicians really try to stay very curious about who they're with mm-hmm. and try to join them as much as possible. Yeah, yeah makes yeah. a ton of sense. Well, so are there places then in the intersection that are maybe um, less symbiotic than you've just described, sort of? Um, sure. They're, you know, different approaches or, or where Buddhism and psychoanalysis sort of depart drastically. Yeah, there, there are some, some pretty significant differences. And I think um, they're not irreconcilable, but they, they just speak to a different understanding of the, the human condition. And the analytic tradition has a, a tendency to want to really focus in on what's uniquely personal. Uh, this is not true of, of every school of thought, but generally speaking, the idea is to really stay focused on the individual experience, whereas a Buddhist perspective wants to zoom out and have a look at, at the human condition mm. and the, the ways in which we all experience uniquely these common, common themes of suffering or the wish to be happy the wish to feel well. So, so that's that's quite a quite a difference. Um, I would say another big difference is the approach to anger. In in Buddhism, anger is considered to be inherently problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, although, again, in certain lineages, there's there's some very creative ways of inviting anger in and working with it. In the analytic tradition, there's there's a real respect for all feelings, including anger, hmm. and and I would say maybe a little more curiosity about what's in it, what's trying to be expressed through it. Mm-hmm. So if you sit down with the psychoanalyst and you say, well, and I've also brought in the uh, Buddhist approach associated with this, do they uh, they interested? Are they excited about how the approach could uh, change how they practice, or are they more resistive to it? I, I think there is interest. I mean, I, I recently gave a presentation to um, uh, a group of clinicians from a variety of backgrounds, but some of them very traditionally trained. And I, I think as, as long as they're hearing an approach that is not dogmatic, there's interest, because mm-hmm. People who, who are therapists over time will find that they have to keep learning new tools, they, right? They have to keep diversifying their understanding of what, what helps, what ushers in healing. Um, so I, I have found more curiosity than not, hmm. um, although certainly there are many clinicians who are just not drawn to spirituality or they're sure. not drawn to religious life. 
And so it, for them, it, it just doesn't feel so relevant to the clinical endeavor. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and for you, it sounds like you have found it to be very key. Am mm-hmm. I saying that correctly? Very key. Yeah, I, I think so, because, I mean, at least as far as I understand, we all have intellectual life, right? We all have psyche. Mm-hmm. We all have biological life, bodies. But we also have spiritual life. We, we do have a, a spiritual element to our being. And I think, I think it's helpful for therapists to have respect for that, that part of our experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would, whether or not they... Sorry, go ahead, Sean. No, you go ahead. You go ahead. You know, whether or not they, they, they feel that they're equipped to directly address it, Again, I just think a little more curiosity, a little more appreciation for for the spiritual part of our being is is a very helpful part of any good psychotherapy. Yeah, I think I would even question without any spiritual understanding or assistance or support how many folks don't get the help they need because, as you know, it's, it's fully integrated to all of our bodies. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean... I I would ideally like to see in all analytic training programs um, some effort to help candidates and future therapists just begin to to consider the spiritual part of our being sure. mm-hmm. and how it impacts sense. our bodies, how it impacts our psychological life, and yeah. how how we can be helped psychologically by spiritual practice, by mm-hmm. spiritual community. And I have many patients who suffer extreme isolation, right, and and also negative beliefs about themselves that mm-hmm. they're they're not lovable, that Absolutely. they can't be known. Mm-hmm. And often it's in spiritual community where people start to challenge those negative beliefs. Yeah. So relative to Buddhism specifically and some of its teachings, are there sort of specific teachings or methods that you think would um, be of great benefit to the the analytical side of practice for anybody, you know, whether they're um, Buddhist or not, but are there just certain fundamental things that you think, man, if if everyone sort of approached their therapeutic professional practice with these couple of ideas in mind, just the, the effectiveness for their patients would go up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, that's a great question. And I, I think there are a number of, of practices that are extremely helpful for good clinical work, but two that come to mind uh, is mindfulness, mm-hmm. and that's become widely um, integrated into clinical work, both both for the therapist, simply to notice more about what's what's happening within the therapist's experience, but also to help patients cultivate that that ability simply to notice non-judgmentally, non-reactively. This is so helpful and and good clinical Mm -hmm. work. Yep. Well, I I, I do have to ask one question because it's like the most important question because I always have to know why you named it To Heal a Wounded Heart. Why did you name the book that? (laughs) It's a great question, Sean, and I will admit this was not the title that I, I had planned on most of the time, um, that's what happens. That's why I have to ask. 
I, I had another title that I was pretty attached to. Um, the publishers had some concerns that that the content wouldn't quite come through with the title that I had hoped for. Okay, what is and it? So, we got to know. Come on. <laughs> okay, okay. So originally I had hoped to call it Bodie in a Broom Closet. <gasps> yes! Really? <laughs> yeah, and, okay. and they refused. Really? Oh, okay. I know it was it was very difficult. It was difficult. I will admit they're wonderful, but but the title selection was a challenging process. And we we eventually, after much dialogue, (laughs) title calm, calm, peaceful dialogue. That's right. I was going to say objective dialogue. (laughs) Right. Because I felt it was it was important in the title to allude to the struggle to the pain that was getting worked out and not to have a a too positive title. Yeah, because it isn't easy work, is it? It, it, That's almost misleading somebody to say, oh, you're just going to come in. We're going to do all this wonderful stuff. You'll be so happy. And they get about two sessions in, and they're going, what What is this? I'm, like, dying in here and trying to understand what's happening. Doing the hard work. It's it's painful. Tough. It's really tough. Yeah. That's right. So psychotherapy and then your integration of it. We know psychotherapy continues to change, but it does sound like Mm -hmm. the idea of bringing a spiritual element into it would be a more complete Mm -hmm. approach. And I think that's what you're kind of saying here, aren't you? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And and I'll also acknowledge there there are many people who have come before me, my my great mentor, Ann Ulanov. And then before Anne, the existential analyst like Viktor Frankl, etc. Many people who have been trying to, and Jung certainly, uh, just uh, hold a, a, a wider frame for what can happen in psychotherapy. So, and again, I, I appreciate that that psychotherapy is not a religion, right? It's not <laughs> a spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. Um, but what people come to work out in therapy will will include their spiritual experience mm-hmm. and often their religious experience. Well, and to me, uh, when you look at whether you believe people that take surveys and all that kind of stuff, I mean, you're talking high 80s, 80 percentile of people that believe that there's greater uh, greater spiritual effects in our life that some are God believers, et cetera, et cetera. It's a high percentage. So if you're a psychoanalyst, yeah. you are working with the public. You're working with 80% plus that believe in a spiritual entity. So thus not to integrate it in to me almost is a lack of common sense in application. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. The vast majority of people who uh, who live certainly in the United States mm-hmm. and who who go into therapy have have some belief system that's spiritual in nature yeah. or or religious. So again, it, it doesn't it, it doesn't mean that the therapist has to to be in sync with those beliefs. Right. But I do think therapists need to have a deepening appreciation and curiosity about those the beliefs and also the experiences. Yeah, because mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. the injury can be spiritual. Yeah, I mean, oh, just yeah, can be. Absolutely, that's right. Um, and to that's not right. address it or whatever, you're you're kind of beating the brain and the heart to death, while the spirit itself is in pain. That's right. 
So right. it just does make sense. Makes mm-hmm. sense. So um, as for uh, as for purchasing the book for our listeners, where can they get the book? Uh, the book's available on Amazon, okay. um, and it should be available at most local bookstores. Okay. Okay. So Great. to heal a wounded heart, even though we want them to change that title, girl. <laughs> Bodie in the broom closet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it. Dr. Jennings, thank you so much for joining us. We we just really appreciate your input. We appreciate the different view and approach. Yeah, what a and, great perspective. Yeah, it is. And and mm-hmm. you're continuing to widen, hopefully, other psychotherapists to be able to integrate um, uh, spiritual beliefs and understandings and just be able to help people. And, and, and when that came across my desk, I just thought, a uh, wonderful perspective, something I've not seen come across my desk. And I, I thought it'd be a great interview, and it has been. And we just want to thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Sean. I really enjoyed our conversation. Great. Thanks so much. Amy Baker, Dr. Sean Benzinger. Humarian Health Podcast. Spilling our guts. For the well-being of yours. That's right. Thanks for having the guts to listen to the Humarian Health Podcast. If you have things you'd like to gut check, send us an email at gutcheck at humarian.com. 